How comfortable do you feel with awake intubation? Well, if you're not comfortable, you're in luck. I have Dr. Laura Duggan talking about awake intubation this week. But before we get there, let's talk about the Resus X ROSC Return to Spontaneous Circulation Conference happening in just a couple of weeks. This is the conference that focuses on cardiac arrest. So if you want to ensure that your patients survive with good neurologic outcome, then this is the conference you want to see. I mean, you can't argue with this faculty of Amal Matu, Tarlan Hediani, Corey Slovis, Scott Weingart. I just can keep going on and check out the show notes for the faculty involved. We have two packages for you to choose from. The live package where you can just follow along live, or we have the all access pass, which we can watch the conference live or have access to the videos in the show notes after the conference is done. Either way, you're going to walk out of that conference being a much better resuscitation of spirit patients post cardiac arrest. Don't delay, sign up now. And back to the podcast with Dr. Laura Duncan. She's one of the smartest people I know and also one of the nicest. And she's going to be taking us through the approach to awake intubation, going through some cases, some examples, and also how to prepare yourself for this procedure. So if this is not something that is part of your intubation package, then do not miss a second of this podcast. Let's sit back and learn. Airway expert, Dr. Laura Duggett. So I wanted to take a deeper dive into awake intubation with this talk. I mentioned to consider awake techniques with blunt and penetrating airway trauma. Um, particularly with blunt trauma in terms of an awake technique by way of a low trach. Penetrating airway trauma can be done usually post-induction, but there is going to be times where you're going to be worried about that airway and want to do it awake. So how do you do an awake intubation? Now, you and I are clinicians first and foremost. So what we want is a successful awake intubation almost 100% of the time. We want a dense airway block where we don't want to have to depend on sedation to try and make that patient more compliant because they're gagging and coughing and being very uncomfortable. So uh, I'm going to go through with you what I use for my awakened patients. Again, a lot of this will be distilled down from facts and from about 20 years experience now with anesthesia as well as a few years' experience in emergency medicine prior to that. And I've mentioned this in my previous talk, but how do you maintain your wake intubation skills? And so that's going to be very important to do, and it is difficult to do because we only do them about even 1% of the time at maximum in the operating room, maybe 2% in our ENT room where we do repeated airway operations. We need to actually practice evidence-based decision-making and procedural skills, i.e. the CRIQ learned from 10 years ago may not be the best evidence now. And we need to avoid siloing and soloing in terms of our airway management. There is nothing to be ashamed of if you don't know how to do a particular skill and other people need to be there for you together to decide what to do best. And that also includes sometimes having other specialties involved. In fact, I love having an uh, ENT surgeon in the room when I'm doing a complex airway. So here's the first question. Why bother with awake intubation when I have a VL? Now that video laryngoscopy is becoming standard of care, 
uh, not direct laryngoscopy. In my humble opinion, most airway management should be done as first pass success in with video laryngoscopy as opposed to direct laryngoscopy. And I now see VL as standard of care and DL as an advanced technique for certain particular airways. Why bother when VL is available? And the answer is, and this is only one of many studies that have now come forward, but this is out of Halifax, showing that even in the best of hands in the airway room, in the thoracics room for anesthesia, awake intubation continues to occur approximately 1% of the time in that black arrow, or sorry, black line down at the bottom of the screen, despite having video laryngoscopy for approximately a decade. So there will always be patients that need awake intubations. And why is that? There's two different reasons for that to be, which is the anatomically difficult airway. The patient at the top of your screen is long-term burn patient who is presented with a suicide attempt and has polypharmacy, not really sure what. Clearly a very anatomically difficult airway in all spheres, be that intubation, superglottic device insertion for rescue oxygenation, the ability to BVM this patient, or even to do a crud. The patient that you see next down at the four o'clock position where it's always a bad sign if there's a respiratory therapist pacing back and forth with that patient, he presented with a post-anterior cervical spine fusion bleed and a deviated trachea. Very small environmental distance and you can tell he's going to be tough for all those spheres again. And then finally, you see in the approximate eight o'clock position, a woman with Ludwig's angina. And in my opinion, Ludwig's angina is the thing that makes me most concerned in terms of head and neck infection. Ludwig's angina takes up the space that I want to put a tongue into. That space at the bottom of the jaw, the submental space, takes it up with infection, pushes the epiglottis back, and everything, all tissues become very edematous and difficult to manipulate. This is a very difficult airway. All of these patients are sitting up because they cannot lie down and be comfortable. And then finally, and shout out to Jared Mosier in, at the University of Arizona for recognizing and articulating so well with data and evidence that we need to start paying more attention to the physiologically difficult airway. And by that uh, right-sided failure, you can see this patient at the two o'clock position, is, he's got lower pneumonia and he's failing. And there's a lot of reasons why he will not be pre-oxygenated no matter what you do. His physiology as well as his anatomy are quite difficult. In the four o'clock, pulmonary embolus waiting to be born from a DVT and right-sided failure just waiting to happen as, so, as soon as you start positive pressure ventilation on this patient. This is a mid-esophageal four-chamber view on transesophageal echo and the left side of your screen is actually the right side of the heart. And then at the eight o'clock position, you see a woman who is actually having fetal distress, who has all the physiologic changes of, of being pregnant, as well as class three obesity, as well as a very small environmental distance and an overbite. So again, physiology and anatomy can come together. And then, of course, physiology and anatomy that we see sometimes in the post-cardiac surgery patient, but also knife wounds to the chest, et cetera, et cetera. So all of these very physiologically difficult. 
So this is where I don't want to induce positive pressure ventilation. I want to maintain the patient's own spontaneous or negative pressure ventilation. So in awake intubation, you just manage getting that tube in. That's all you manage. And the patient manages their airway protection and gas exchange. But if you elect because you're somewhat avoidant of awake intubation because you're not comfortable with it, you haven't really done it before, or you don't want to have the same experience you had last time with the patient crying and bucking and flapping their arms, and you elect to do a patient like this post-induction, you need to manage their gas exchange. They will desat immediately. Their airway patency and protection, they will completely collapse their airway, particularly in the setting of Ludwig's angina or post-surgical bleed of the neck and getting the tube in at the same time and the patient doesn't manage a damn thing. So if you want to get uh, a team approach to a very difficult physiologic and anatomic airway, make the patient part of that team, make them do some of the jobs while you're getting that tube in. So awake intubation made simple. So this is my approach. Glycopyrrolate is great in that it dries up secretions, but it also maintains a heart rate. When somebody's getting severely hypoxic, at least they're not getting severely bradycardic at the same time. But you're going to need five to 20 minutes, depending on how you give glycopyrrolate. So consider it early. If you get called, just, just get it in. And if you don't, if you don't remember it, it's not the end of the world. Sedation, we're going to call. We're going to talk about uh, briefly equipment and topicalization. I'm going to I'm going to really hone in on that moving forward. Sedation, none. Just see what I did there. Um, so don't use sedation for awake intubation. Don't set up some fancy schmancy Remy or dexmedetomidine infusion. Don't use sedation as a crutch to poor topicalization. And disclosure, I'm one of the, in Canada, I'm one of the Royal College examiners for anesthesiology, for getting your certification in anesthesiology for, for our country. And I hear candidates coming for their exam talk a lot about judicious sedation. And my response is, judicious sedation is a descriptor only made in retrospect. I have seen patients completely conk out with half a milligram of midazolam, particularly if they are physiologically stressed and anatomically stressed. Do not sedate these patients. Rely on your topicalization technique. Equipment should be maintained and not look like this. This was, a, this was the drawer that I opened when that patient that I just showed you came in with Ludwig's angina. It's a dog's breakfast, and that's completely unacceptable. So even if you don't use it very often, make sure that it looks like an IKEA showroom. Have everything that you need very easily laid out. And I have no idea why we have so much lubricating jelly for an airway. So topicalization, most of the time when you pick up lidocaine, it says 2% lidocaine. Make sure you get 4% lidocaine for topicalization. And topicalization, you know, think about nebulization versus atomization. And I don't mean to go down a rabbit hole of ridiculousness, but this actually matters to really think about this. You want to actually topicalize three different nerves. You don't need the first two thirds of the tongue. You need the posterior one third of the tongue. So you don't have to spread a lot of stuff in the anterior tongue, just the back where the trigeminal nerve is. 
you then want to topicalize above the glottis, above the entry point where the vocal cords are and the false vocal cords and the arachnoids are, and that's glossopharyngeal. And then you want to topicalize the internal branch of the superior laryngeal and the recurrent branch of the vagus nerve. I always get that mixed up. But anyway, that could come up on a question, just saying. So atomizers produce very large particulates, 50 microns. Nebulizers is what we use in asthma and other things to get it down to the terminal bronchioles. So if you want to topicalize up here, you need big, fat droplets to rain down on the airway as opposed to getting it more systemically in the lower airway through smaller droplets above 5 microns. So this is actually a study very nice in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine that came out in 2014 looking at micron size. And I always thought that I was a bit of a geek when I did some aerosol research in the early 2000s. But now I'm realizing, like, we all are kind of interested in aerosols since COVID happened. So this is what we're talking about in terms of aerosolization, the, the 10 to 50 microns. And if you're a visual learner, this is what it looks like. So the nebulizer looks like this. It's small particulates. And that's what it looks like above the airway. And so we've just done a nasopharyngoscopy in a mannequin here and just recorded what, what nebulizing looks like in a mannequin. Atomizing looks like this. It is turbocharged local anesthesia. It goes where you want it to. These atomizers have an articulating end, so you can actually rain down atomized local anesthesia right into the glottic opening or that you just ask the patient to stick out their tongue and breathe like this. Low tidal volumes, but a little bit faster than their usual respiratory rate. And look at that. That is a winter in Vancouver. That is just rains down. And if you try this yourself with 4% lidocaine, you will find approximately three sprays. In about two minutes, you'll be able to put in your own oral airway. And I'm not kidding you. Consider doing it just to have that sense of onset of action. So in terms of how to get glossopharyngeal, so the atomization will get you the internal branch of the recurrent laryngeal and the recurrent laryngeal of the, or sorry, the internal branch of the superior laryngeal, which is part of the vagus nerve. And then it will also get you below the glottis as the patient breathes it in. And so that is the recurrent branch of the vagus nerve. To get glossopharyngeal or the back of the tongue and lower down into the vollecula, you really want 5% paste. So not gel as a high water content, paste is, goes where you put it. And you don't need a lot of this, but order it from pharmacy, 5% lidocaine. And again, try it on yourself. If you take a tongue depressor and make it about as big as your thumbnail and just put it on the back of the patient's tongue, ask them to just leave it there, tell them it's going to melt down, they will eventually cough a little bit and that means that it's melting down into the sidewalls, going down into the piriform fossa and getting bilateral glossopharyngeal nerves. So this stuff is magic. It absolutely is magic. So don't rely on uh, 2% water-based gel, it's not going to work.
I should say it does work only in about 80%. And you don't want to have that unreliability and the seduction to ghost to sedation. And this is a resident of mine years ago and done it. And he's able to just easily put in his own oral airway. So I don't shove things at patients. I get them to put in, like I give them a yonker in their hand while we're doing this. And I, I keep them sitting up. I keep them on nasal oxygen. Not a huge high flow because it'll, it'll uh, disperse my local anesthesia maybe about four liters per minute and get them to try with the yonker if they still have a gag reflex or not. So this is actually a really interesting article. It's quite current. And this was a systematic review and meta-analysis looking at in awake intubation, what is best, flexible scope versus video laryngoscopy. And what they found was it's the same. So what I would suggest to you is if you have VL skills, Use VL skills for awake intubation. You don't have to use flexible skills at all for awake intubation. And don't use DL. It's too much pressure on the tissues, and awake patients don't tolerate it. DL, much less force on the tissues, and you still get a really nice first-pass success rate. And you can see here, this is an ICU patient, and we're doing VL. Don't use small screen VL. Make sure your whole team can see it, see what you're doing and be able to help you uh, accordingly. And we are not using a combined technique here, we're just using a styleted, dedicated GlideScope stylet for this intubation and it worked very well. For This was Jen, she was an ICU fellow at the time, this was her first awake intubation, worked really well. Beware of glottic impersonation. And by that I mean, if you yard up on somebody's airway hard enough, the sidewalls of the esophagus can become quite white and get quite pale. And if you really want it to be, it can look like an airway. And so just be very aware, trust waveform capnography, continuous waveform capnography over your eyes. Do not trust your eyes, even with VL over waveform capnography. So these are two different references that I would suggest. The first one is the Difficult Airway Society and their recommendations for awake intubation. And so I think that it's very good. I disagree with some of the things that they say about sedation. When I go to the dentist and I get a root canal, they don't sedate me. And your patient doesn't have to get sedated. Awake intubation shouldn't be a big deal. It should be just what you do and what's part of an airway plan. And then finally, and this is probably one of the most important publications right now in 2022 for intubation, which is the use and continuous use of waveform capnography and trusting that over anything else, including in the, in the cardiac arrest patient. So skills maintenance, as mentioned with trauma, skills maintenance is about using nasopharyngoscopy when you absolutely can, there's a patient indication for it. So I'm not saying go around and do this tip for everybody, but if you are curious about the airway and you've done your external exam, but you're wondering what's in there, go find out what's in there. Use nasopharyngoscopy and then get your colleagues to come down and help you do an awake intubation if this is something that you're uncomfortable with. In your mind's eye, consider whether you're avoiding awake intubation because you're uncomfortable with it, as opposed to whether the patient may require it and would benefit from it. So I would encourage you to call your colleagues in anesthesia, and I can tell you this, we avoid it too. 
So I have an adage in my practice, which is if I'm thinking about using succinylcholine because I don't want it to last for very long because I'm a bit worried about the airway, I will do that airway awake. And I would encourage you to actually call and, and that we'll work together doing awake intubation together. Thanks very much.